Good afternoon. Uh, good morning. Good evening. Thank you to all of you for joining us for this uh, important uh, meeting today. My name is Charlotte Hebebrand. I'm the Director of Communications and Public Affairs at IFPRI. And uh, we will be talking today about uh, how to best ensure that innovations can have a positive impact on food systems transformation. And the need for these kinds of innovations for food systems transformation has arguably never been uh, more urgent than what we face today. It's just this week that Bill Gates spoke about the challenge uh, in particular of climate change adaptation. And he wrote that we need better methods and tools to grow food, just like we need to find zero carbon ways to move around and generate electricity. He also referred to the consultative group on international agricultural research, uh, saying this, there's no better organization to create the innovations that will help poor farmers adapt to climate change in the years ahead and spoke of the CG system as a global partnership that helps to make plants and animals more resilient and productive. Of course, IFPRI is one of the members of the uh, CGIR, and we will be spending a lot of time today talking about uh, the uh, present discussion about bringing together the centers of the CGIR uh, more closely together. Um, it's now my great pleasure to turn to the Director General of IFPRI, uh, Johan Swinnen, who will give us his uh, overview of this very important report that we'll be presenting today. Over to you, Jo. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much, Charlotte. Um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce this uh, session here uh, today. Uh, we have a, a fantastic lineup of, of speakers, actually, and so I'm <clears throat> going to I'm going to keep it short because the the person best positioned to introduce the report is the <clears throat> the lead author of the report, which is Chris Barrett himself. I think most of you will know that the CGIR system uh, of which IFPRI is part of is going through a major transformation to what will be called the one CGIR or is already called the one CGIR with a new structure and a new research program. Uh, so part of this transformation has to do with the structure, how the systems will be the centers and the research will be organized. Part of it is really also about uh, coming up with great new research ideas for bringing out uh, the best of us going forward in the next decade. So this research agenda for the next decade, which is the research strategy 2030 of the, of the one CGIR has been approved in, uh, in the uh, winter of, of last year by the system council of the CGIR at a fairly high level. And at this point, we are going through an intensive period, an intensive set of meetings and uh, discussions of turning this into concrete research programs, research projects, which uh, we are referring to as initiatives, research initiatives. So the report that Chris Barrett and his team have put together came at, at a perfect time almost for helping us to think through some of these uh, ideas of, these, uh, of the initiatives, how to construct them, what would be the best uh, research programs and project to uh, put forward and uh, as an inspiration for us. The uh, key issue for IFPRI, particularly because of the, the nature of the research that we do within the CGIR research strategy is relationship and the balance, the interaction of socioeconomic research, policy research, and more technical research. And so this is very much the focus of this report and, and a key issue which is being addressed. And for that reason, also, in addition to the more general issues, I mean, the, the, the timing and the contributions, I think are, are really important. Today, I think we have a, a fantastic panel, I would almost say a dream team 
of uh, people on this on this panel. Uh, I don't think that Chris Barrett needs an introduction. Uh, Chris is a giant of our profession. He has uh, basically a lot of achievements. He received a lot of awards as well. I would probably need his 12 minutes to go through his CV to introduce him properly. Uh, he knows the CDIR uh, system quite well. And of course, he knows a lot of the issues that we are talking about today very well. And so together, uh, I really look forward to hearing him, uh, uh, his uh, summary of the report and also in the Q&A session to uh, how he will respond to the number of questions and the comments that will come forward. On the panel, the first member of the panel who will open the panel discussion is Claudia Sedov. Claudia has, uh, has a long title, a formal title, which is on the on the program, which is the executive management team convener and managing director of the research delivery and impact CGIR. Uh, she is really the she is really the leader, if you want, of uh, developing the new research strategy of the CGIR going forward for the next decade. And she has shown a tremendous amount of leadership in moving this forward. And uh, we really look forward to hearing her comments on on, on Chris's introduction. Um, the next uh, speaker or panel member is Enoch Chikava. Enoch is the Deputy Director for Agricultural Development, Global Growth and Opportunity at the, Belinda, at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It's not uh, good ideas alone are not enough. You, one also needs investors in these uh, good ideas and people willing to invest in uh, moving us forward in this. And so we very much look forward also to Enoch's comments and how he sees this from an investor perspective, what are the best ways forward and the best places to put uh, the investment dollars in. Um, Karen Makur is also on the panel. Karen and I go back a long way. Karen was one of my first students and one of my most brilliant students yet in my career. She turned out, she was much too smart for me. So she moved to Berkeley, got her PhD there and then became a very, uh, <clears throat> had a very distinguished career already, despite her still young age. She is now a professor in uh, the Paris School of Economics, but she is also the chair of the CGIR Standing Panel on Impact Assessment. And as also from this perspective, has some very important contributions to make, I think. And finally, uh, Channing Arndt is on the panel. Uh, Channing has played a very important role for IFPRI in this whole development. He has really led uh, IFPRI's contributions and, 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 and insights on uh, developing the research initiatives, uh, the research programs, and is playing a role till today. So we really look forward to hear his views as well. With that, Charlotte, back to you. Thank you so much, Yo. Um, before we turn to Chris, let me uh, ask all of you to uh, already begin, as you listen to Chris, to submit some of your questions. You can do so on, on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or you can use the hashtag uh, AskIfpre on Twitter. Uh, and then we will have those teed up when we come to the Q&A session. So without further ado, let me turn it to, to Chris. Uh, we look forward to your presentation, Chris. Thank you very much, Charlotte, and thank you, Yo. It's a real pleasure to get to speak with friends at IFPRI and the broader CGIR, and very much appreciate your interest in the expert panel report that I'll be presenting today on behalf of the co-authors. So this is a very long report, so let me be careful to not pretend that I'm giving you everything. And it's also a complex report because it was it was drafted by an expert panel of, of 23 people from around the world, various organizations, multilaterals like the African Development Bank, philanthropies like Rockefeller Foundation, institutional investment houses, venture capitalists, 
major food retailers like Walmart, manufacturers like Nestle or Pepsi, but also farmer groups and environmental and social justice NGOs like TNC or Oxfam, as well as researchers from around the world. So it's really quite a diverse group of experts brought together to think hard about what is it that we need to be doing so that we can build sustainable, equitable, inclusive food value chains for the coming generation or two. And the, I'm going to summarize four core points that we came up with and then seven key takeaways. So perhaps the most important thing to keep firmly in mind is the tension between two realities. The first is the reality that agri-food systems innovations have enabled absolutely remarkable advances in human well-being during our lifetimes. This graphic just gives you one simple depiction. We've been adding on average about 90 million additional people to the ranks of the adequately nourished, enough calories and protein uh, to, to sustain a healthy life that's leaving out minerals and vitamins. So 10,000 people an hour for 30 plus years. That's a truly remarkable accomplishment. It also comes with poverty reduction and a variety of other gains. So it's important to keep in mind how important and successful agri-food system innovation has been at improving the human condition. It is equally important to keep firmly in mind that the innovations we have pursued over the past generation or two have had unsustainable adverse spillover effects on the climate, on the broader natural environment, on public health and nutrition manifests, particularly in obesity and overweight, but also in, in mineral and vitamin deficiencies and in social justice issues. So we need to pursue innovation, but we equally need to update our objectives and to accelerate the path of innovation in the agri-food system going forward. And so the, the panel with that firm motivation in mind had four key conclusions. The first is the task of accelerating and reorienting agri-food system innovation has to keep firmly in mind four key features of agri-food systems, which we summarize in the mnemonic is. So the most important of those is that this is a system marked by human agency. Both the, the, the benefits and the problems of the agri-food system arise due to the uncoordinated actions of billions of independent actors. There is no potential to have some system level optimization. We must set up incentives and constraints that induce people collectively and individually to behave in ways that ultimately lead to good outcomes and minimize adverse effects. Part of the challenge of this is the heterogeneity of agri-food systems around the world, both at local and global scales. There are no one size fits all solutions. The panel was under considerable pressure to try to prioritize innovation A or, or technology X as being the highest priority, we resisted that urge to emphasize instead more process and principles, precisely because what is going to work effectively in drylands in East Africa or the Sahel is unlikely to work well in subhuman systems, much less in advanced high-income temperate zones. So we need the flexibility to attend to the heterogeneity that is intrinsic to agri-food systems. Spillover effects are ubiquitous. This indeed is part of the challenge of managing innovation in agri-food systems, is we need to focus not just on the intended objectives and outcomes of our innovations, we need to be at least as aware of all the unintended but predictable consequences, as well as monitor for the perhaps unpredicted consequences. 
And finally, science-based innovation is ever more important in evolutionary systems. The world is constantly changing. Some of that change is anthropogenic, some of it is not. But regardless of the source of change, change demands that we adapt. And adaptation is most effective when it is well-informed by science. And we all know that we face challenges in society today around embracing and accelerating the use of science in public discourse, as well as in commerce and in everyday life. The second key conclusion we came to is that in a system marked by those his characteristics, we need to embrace a vision that is hers, that is advancing healthy diets, equitable livelihoods, health-related consequences of diets are, are among the most serious causes of disease faced by humankind today. The agri-food system is the single largest employer in, on the planet. And the inequities, not just in incomes, but in the risks people run of injury, disease, even death, are, are considerable and can be improved. As we've all seen during the pandemic, the resilience of the food system is somewhat questionable. And there are reasons to be concerned that more systemic and irreversible changes like sea level rise or subsidence of coastal areas may not lend themselves to the sort of resilience we've seen in response to, to localized shutdowns of economies. And finally, the system must be sustainable. So we embrace those four core objectives, the HERS objectives at a longer time horizon than the CGIR is presently focused on. We quite intentionally were looking out at 25 to 50 year scales. And the reason for that is quite simple. By 2030, by the SDG target year, there is no technology not yet already in development, in piloting, that will have any impact at scale. It is too slow a process to get from new innovation, new ideas to scaled impact. Think back to 1975 in the Asilomar uh, recombinant DNA conference. That's when we first started thinking about our RNA and we see its miraculous effects in the development of vaccines for COVID today or in the early 1980s when we first had the development of a network of networks, what today we think of as the internet, without which we wouldn't be having today's discussion. You know, those are innovations that took decades to really hit the accelerating pace of change we see today. So we wanted to look into that future. And as one looks into that future, you really need to be thinking about foresight, about the things that are going to be changing. And the big three things that are inevitably going to be changing are climate, because there's so much baked into the system already by the excesses of recent generations, recent decades, uh, excessive emission of greenhouse gases. Second, population shifts, not just growth, population in, in, in around the globe will likely peak sometime this century, but also the shift, perhaps most importantly, the shift in urbanizing populations, in aging populations, and in the reconcentration of humans in Africa primarily. Africa will become the most populous single region of the world in another couple of decades. And finally, income growth, which we should celebrate, but also appreciate the problems that income growth causes. And the combination of those three in particular has one really key implication that I'm pleased the CGIR has, has been way out front on. And that is we need to pay far more attention to Africa than we do presently. Africa will account for more than half of global food demand growth from today to 2100. 
between the fact that its population growth is faster, its income growth will be at least as fast, and the income elasticity of demand for food in Africa is higher than in any other region. And Africa is urbanizing faster, which elongates supply chains, and climate change impacts will be quite severe in parts of Africa. So we really need to be focusing on innovation in particular in and for Africa and African agri-food systems. The fourth and final big conclusion we came to was, we don't have a dearth of new technologies. There are uncountable numbers of innovations already under development, in many cases already scaling at early stages, but like some of the meat substitutes we see entering really quickly into supermarket channels and fast food channels in high income countries, there are an enormous number of new technologies at all stages of the value chains, in all geographies, and at different stages of readiness. There is a profuse pipeline. The real challenges surround several other things. They surround how do we combine these? How do we prioritize them? And who is going to benefit and who is going to lose from the innovation? And so that forces us to think carefully about an agri-food systems innovation cycle which we, we depict in this graphic that I won't elaborate on. Go see the report if you'd like more details. I'm just gonna highlight a couple of the seven essential actions that, that we emphasize. The first and most important is that among this profuse pipeline of innovations that are emergent, one must develop bundles. There are no magic bullets. There are no single technologies that will accomplish all we need to accomplish in agri-food systems. There are three reasons that you need to bundle. The first is, there are synergies across these. We wouldn't have seen the massive impact of new germplasm developments by CGIR and, and other uh, NARS if we hadn't seen complementary investments in extension services, in irrigation, in rural road networks. Those synergistic impacts of different innovations are crucial. We need to address the political economy problems that arise from spillovers. You know, the transition to, uh, to, to farmless production of protein has consequences in rural areas that we must attend to through other innovations that safeguard the vested interests that help them to transition. And third, there are heterogeneous needs like meeting micronutrient deficiency needs. There is biofortification is part of a puzzle one needs to put together to attend to that. So we need these bundles of different social as well as technical innovations, policies as well as, as engineering. The second uh, key essential action is we must reduce the footprint of, of food production on land and water. We're seeing this happening. It's increasingly acceptable culturally. It's economically feasible. It's technologically feasible. But the process of de-agrarianization, of decoupling food production from the land, much as a century ago, we increasingly decoupled food production from labor through mechanization. This releases tremendous energy into the economy. It opens up new possibilities, but it is also creative destruction. And the political economy of that transition is absolutely crucial to manage. We must, uh, we must reduce the footprint on land and water, and we must manage that transition effectively. This has to be a process of co-creation requiring key performance measures, agreed penalties for violations of expectations, as well as safety nets to protect those who bear the risk of dramatic change. There are several other essential actions that I will, I will, I'll just skip through quickly, but let me just emphasize one final one, which Yo emphasized earlier, the need to develop novel financing mechanisms. 
We must stop depending upon pure philanthropy or donations from governments, high-income country governments or multilaterals. We must mobilize private resources. We need hundreds of billions of dollars annually. Interest rates are at historic lows. Investors are looking for new opportunities. This can be done, but we have to pay attention to a different constituency than, uh, than we have historically emphasized at the table in discussing agri-food in system innovations. That involves reconfiguring public support, partly to create the space for private investors and partly to create to, to end extremely wasteful investments by many of our governments. So with that, I thank you. I very much look forward to hearing the thoughts of the distinguished discussants. There's a website that has access to the report and a variety of ancillary publications. Thank you very much for your time and interest in this topic. Thank you very much, Chris, for an excellent uh, overview of this report. And I do encourage everybody, if you haven't yet, to read the report because it is extremely timely. Um, we'll now turn to our discussants. Um, and as, as Yo said at the beginning, uh, two of them are actually uh, uh, very uh, familiar with this concept of coupling technical innovations with social and policy change, um, because it has in fact informed also the thinking behind the one CGIR and the soon to be established science groups. Uh, we'll then hear from uh, Enoch Chikava from the Gates Foundation, who will speak from the perspective of an important donor uh, also to the, uh, to the CG system. And then uh, Karen uh, McCour will speak to the important role of impact assessment and present a look at how um, innovations from the CG system have or have not been taken up in, in a particular country, namely Ethiopia. So kicking us off is uh, Claudia Sadov. She is the team convener of the uh, 1CGIR executive management team. Um, and she's also the managing director for research delivery and impact. And in that role, she works very closely with the system council, the system board, and all of the director generals of the centers. Claudia, we're delighted to have you with us and uh, look forward to your uh, thoughts about this report and how well actually it ties in with the work that you and your colleagues are doing. Thank you. Thank you, Charlotte, and uh, great to be with all of you today. Let me start by uh, thanking Chris and his colleagues on the panel for this really excellent work. Um, the findings of the panel resonate very strongly with the work of CGIR and our aspirations for one CGIR moving forward. Recall that the new mandate of the CGIR is to deliver science and innovation that advances transformation of food, land, and water systems in a climate crisis. And it's these two concepts, innovation and transformation, that I'd like to focus on and highlight how these ideas are really embedded throughout the 1CG strategy and operational design. Uh, next slide. Uh, to begin with, let me focus on, this is a, a one slide uh, depiction of our research and innovation strategy. And again, it's a research and innovation strategy speaking quite directly to the fact that we need to focus and design our research in order to uh, promote innovation and real change on the ground. So this diagram, uh, it starts at the top. It'll be difficult for different people to read depending upon what device you're using today. But the top blue area of this diagram shows the five impact areas, the transformation that we want to see. These are nutrition, health, and food security, poverty reduction, livelihoods, and jobs, gender equality, youth and social inclusion, 
climate adaptation and mitigation, environmental health and biodiversity. And we are committed to seeking all of these impacts in all of the work that we do simultaneously, wherever possible. And this very strongly parallels the vision put forward by Chris and his panel for the HERS agri-food systems transformation that simultaneously embraces the multiple objectives of healthy, equitable, resilient, sustainable food systems. So it's a very closely aligned vision of these different dimensions that we need to focus on simultaneously. In the green, on this uh, slide, we see the, um, that these are the three pathways to impact that we recognize in the strategy. And these pathways, again, very much, uh, uh, very much relate to uh, the findings of the panel, that we need to look at capacity, technology, and innovation, and also policy. We recognize that these are three arguably distinct levers of change, but that they can leverage one another in combination. And sometimes real change can't occur without moving across all three pathways at once. In the purple we is the space in which we're talking about creating our initiatives. This will be the portfolio that is now under development, as Yo had mentioned, the 2022 to 2024 investment plan that will include both country and regional uh, place-based initiatives, as well as global and thematic initiatives. In the red, still moving down this diagram, uh, we show the way we're going to organize the portfolios in these three action areas, systems transformation, resilient agri-food systems, and genetic innovation. And the first in particular, and it's listed first quite intentionally to focus attention, addresses so many of the seven points that Chris just shared with us. This action area on sustainable transformation really demonstrates a strong, obviously, systems approach. It links, it seeks to uh, focus on our work to link policies, markets, and governance, it will be looking at power imbalances, gender equality, and systemic risks. It'll examine ecological footprints, planetary boundaries, and trade-offs. And it'll include a dedicated and continuous set of work on foresighting. So these three categories um, will be the organizing framework, not only for the portfolio, but also for our operational structure. So the these will be the science groups that researchers from across the CGIR will be affiliated with. And this will knit together also the science group, this knitting together of the science groups or the scientists across the CGR is really at the heart of the reforms. And it aligns very strongly with what we're talking about here today because it reflects the need to better integrate or bundle the work we do on the socioeconomic and policy sp space with the biophysical and technical research that we do across centers in ways to find really truly robust, implementable and scalable solutions. The orange field shows the differences in the ways we want to work and ways in which we will be working. And this includes, again, several of the priorities raised by Chris in the panel, for example, a greater focus on multiple pathways, greater focus on risk and resilience and innovative financing as an important space that we need to explore. And finally, the gray, this is all built on partnership. This is the bedrock. This is the partnership that we build with our countries, with NARS, with universities, with implementation agencies, with funding partners, all that is needed to drive and deliver innovation and impact. But let me now turn specifically to innovation bundles and how we're using this construct to really drive our impact. 
Next slide, please. We're really seeking to build an innovative, in an innovation systems approach to framing CGRR's role and contribution in the five impact areas that I just spoke about. And we're trying to capture and really institutionalize this approach, both in our project design and in our performance and results management framework, the framework that we use to, to capture and continuously adapt uh, to our portfolio management. So the top half of the slide shows that these innovations, uh, that these innovation packages are integral to our theory of change. And that in planning our work, we want to look at creating innovation packages that consist of both research outputs, both the technical and non-technical research outputs, but also capacity development and policy work. Because we know that the technical the te technologies, uh, no matter how spectacular they are, don't create impact at scale on their own. That all three of these areas, these three pathways to impact that we've been talking about, they all need to be considered as innovation bundles. So we'll be using this construct of innovation bundles not only in designing our work, we'll also be using it in the construct in, as our unit of analysis for impact, again, in our performance and results management framework. And this framework, by, by looking quite explicitly across these packages, will help us to monitor, learn, and adapt our initiatives over time to navigate our way forward to impact with these three levers, a little more policy, a little more capacity, a little more technology. We want to be watching uh, impact in real time across these different spaces. It'll provide the evidence for CGAR leadership to allocate resources toward work streams with growing potential and it'll help us to communicate the full spectrum of our impact to funders and to beneficiaries. Um, I see that I'm running through time. So let me just say that with this, what we believe will be uh, a, a change in our core concept of how we look at the design and delivery and measurement of impact in our initiatives. We believe that this is, will provide us really with a more modern performance management system so that we can easily apply these concepts of, of bundling and derive real value from this uh, multi-pathway approach in time to adaptively manage and to develop first and then adaptively manage our portfolio. So we welcome and will learn from the work that Chris and the Cornell Atkinson's panel has provided for us today. And we look very much forward to working across CGR and with our partners to really act on these insights and uh, bring them to life. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you so much, Claudia, for presenting uh, uh, the, the, the structure, the research strategy, and how we will now be moving into the uh, design, uh, uh, the research initiatives. Uh, very, very interesting uh, presentation. Um, before uh, we move to our next panelist, uh, let me remind you that we are going to have a Q&A session. And please do submit your brief questions uh, on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube or you may also do so on Twitter, uh, hashtag AskIFPRI. Um, next, we have uh, Enoch Chikava. He's the Deputy Director for Agricultural Development um, at the um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Enoch, you know the CG system very well, and uh, we're really delighted that you can, uh, you can join us uh, today. Well, thank you very much, uh, Charlotte. Uh, it is also a great honor and privilege for me to be participating today uh, and also to congratulate uh, Chris and his panel of experts for an excellent job 
as I was running through the report, it's really amazing the convergence in thinking with some of the things that we do here. And also to thank you, Claudia, for the great progress uh, in coming up with this global machine, you know, the 1CG. We strongly believe that, again, that this is a very important organization. It may be the only global organization that can really help small-scale producers uh, adapt to the vagaries of uh, climate change. Uh, at, the, at, at the Gates Foundation, we are deeply committed to the belief that every person deserves the opportunity to lead a healthy and productive life. And really, we express that in the agricultural development uh, program, where we aim to catalyze what we call country-led inclusive agricultural transformation, which is actually a process uh, where we believe we can contribute through the development and the scaling of products, services, policies, and system-wide innovations that benefit small-scale producers, empower women, improve nutritional outcomes, and build resilience. This looks a lot like what uh, Chris was talking about. So there's convergence there and also you know, the meeting of minds. So um, as we look at that, we also strongly uh, believe that uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, again, as uh, Chris mentioned, uh, there's the biggest need there, but also in South Asia, we believe that we can empower small-scale producers with knowledge, with the tools, with technologies to improve their lives and lift themselves and their families out of poverty. So we believe agriculture, as you all know, is uh, almost uh, two to three times more effective in reducing poverty than maybe the similar investments in other sectors. And here, I mean, this is uh, resonating with me personally, as someone who grew up on a smallholder farm in a family of 10, you know, only uh, working on two hectares of land. And I know smallholder agriculture, when you have uh, technologies available, you can actually lift many people out of poverty. That's why we are so much passionate about you know, doing this work. But we also believe that our competitive advantage in this space is to accelerate innovation, maybe in three areas. Uh, technological innovation, uh, again, very much uh, our main partner there being uh, you know, the 1CG. So we are very excited that the 1CG is becoming this global machine which will become more efficient and then to be delivering uh, an avalanche of these innovations that are climate resilient. So we, we focus a lot on technological innovation. Roughly, we spend about almost 60% of our budget in accelerating innovation in crops and livestock. And then the second area is uh, on institutional innovation. Uh, this is where we focus a lot on the policies, on the regulations, on the markets, because these are very, very important. Uh, technical solutions must be combined with appropriate policies and, and, and enabling regulatory environment and infrastructure, uh, you know, so that farmers can participate uh, into um, 
well-functioning markets, but also realizing that this has to be candle-led. We can't be more interested in reducing poverty than the government themselves. So our main role there is to really help governments uh, make more informed decisions using data and evidence. And there, that's why we partner a lot with IFPRI. Uh, you know, we are working again, providing modeling work. You know, uh, we, are, we are currently working uh, on the REAPA modeling, which is really, really transformative. Uh, we think by the end of this year, 2021, we should have models that can be used to shape policies in more than 10 countries in Africa and maybe three states in India. So this is very, very, very important. And then the third area, which is the systems innovation. We all agree that the current systems were never designed for poor people. So we are in the process of modernizing them, the seed systems that will be able to reach you know, you know, some of the remote areas, but also of coming up with the soil information system, the extension systems. And again, we are also living at a better time where, where data and the digital innovation can be very disruptive. So we spend a lot of time there, you know, to come up some of the, uh, those solutions. Then lastly, we are now looking at the bundling. Actually, with, with, with the digital innovations, we are coming up with what we call the agri-stack, which is an end-to-end where you can begin now to integrate, you can uh, come up with the ag advisory, extension, financial services into a package. Because again, as you said, you know, smallholder farmers, you want to be efficient as you do so, and you also need to be reducing uh, some of the transaction costs. So really very, very excited. And I know we can say a lot, maybe the, the, the other thing that we do very, very well is also to really monitor progress and learn from it. Because I'm sure you all know that, you know, you can't learn and not change. And you can't change and not grow. So really what Chris is presenting here is uh, really providing us with uh, new ways of looking at how to accelerate, uh, you know, innovation and then making sure that it is uh, also adopted. So really uh, a great pleasure for us, you know, to partner with you all. You know, thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Enoch. And thank you for the Gates Foundation for, for all that you do on the health uh, side, as well as, of course, on the on the agricultural development side. It's, it's, uh, it's just terrific. And it's wonderful to have uh, the foundation also be so actively involved in this transition to, to one CGIR. Um, our next uh, distinguished panelist is, uh, is, is Karen McCour. She's a chaired professor at the Paris School of Economics. She's also a senior researcher with the French National Research Institute for Agriculture, Food and Environment. And most importantly here in this context, she is the chair of a CGIR standing panel on impact assessment. Thank you very much for joining us, Karen. We, we look forward to your remarks. Thank you, Charlotte. Uh, it is great to see everybody. Uh, thanks for inviting me uh, to this panel, which gave me an opportunity to reread uh, the expert uh, report and, and, and continue to learn from it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to zoom in a little bit on, on some specifics, uh, partly by fo focusing on impact assessment. So what does the report and the focus on socio-technological innovations mean for how we think of impact assessment in the one CGR? And then I'm going to uh, zoom in even further uh, and, and talk about one uh, specific uh, country and, and some evidence that speaks to this. Next slide. So first, in terms of 
this impact question. So how do we measure impact of agricultural research and development, the core business of, of the CGR, with this idea when we move uh, to innovation bundles for uh, agriculture and food system transformation. So it's already been mentioned, there's lots of historical evidence on yield enhancing innovations playing an important role, not just in reducing poverty and affecting many other outcomes, including uh, not always in a positive direction. The question is, are those answers still relevant today? And I think the answer coming from, from what uh, is presented in the report is, is no, kind of there is different innovations that are needed uh, to respond to challenges of today's times, in, uh, of today's time, indeed, uh, it's innovation bundles uh, um, uh, that, that may be needed. Um, now, the trade-offs that come from, from uh, uh, introducing uh, innovations in real worlds uh, and at scale uh, are real, um, and, and the need to, at the same time, understand impacts in multiple domains, as, as uh, Claudia has emphasized, arguably increase the need for rigorous causal evidence kind of once we it's, it's hard enough even to know the impact on one domain once we think of impacts on multiple domains some of them may be positive and some of them may be negative we really want to make sure we're getting this right thinking about bundled also means uh, new questions um, because how do we scale uh, innovation bundles as opposed to individual innovations um, SPIA is doing an, an, a set of studies where we're kind of testing how to, uh, whether adapting scaling mechanism to the specific characteristic of innovation makes a big difference. But then how do you do that when we're talking about bundles? Kind of a whole new set of questions. In, in a recent study that we did um, with some colleagues uh, in, in Uganda, uh, we, we looked at an ICRAFS, at ICRAFS farmer trainer to trainer cascade model, where their idea was, and, and, and that's what the paper shows, is that providing a menu of options, so that's just another way of talking about a bundle of innovations, uh, rather than training on individual technologies actually may be one way to go because that way different farmers can pick and choose uh, what works for them. And this also relates back to what Chris was saying and something that Svi has emphasized before, this idea of focusing on principles, uh, broad principles rather than individual practices may get us uh, further down the line. So there is a need for causal evidence. There is also new challenges um, with these multitudes of outcomes uh, and, and of interest for new challenges on the metrics and on the measurement side and innovations needed there. And then last but not least, uh, if we want to have uh, impact at scale, uh, we're gonna, these, these innovations need to reach uh, lots of smallholder farmers. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be hard to get impact. And so that's what the next slide and the rest of the presentation is going to focus on. So next slide. The, uh, where uh, I want to share a few of the findings from a, where we, you know, I'm going to zoom in further uh, and share findings from a country report uh, in Ethiopia, where we systematically and factually uh, document the risk of CGR across uh, different, uh, it's different domains, so crop livestock and natural research management. We did that in Ethiopia because that's a country where all the CGR uh, centers are uh, almost all of them are active. The research programs have been active uh, in collaboration uh, with many of the important partners of, of the system. Um, we took a stock take of the last two decades of research of the CGR and its national partners, which led to identifying 52 different innovations and 26 policy influences. And then we worked uh, in partnership with the Statistical Institute and the World Bank to build novel data protocols, so novel metrics, novel measurements into the National Representative Ethiopia Socioeconomic Survey to get data that is both representative and at scale and that provides objective and independent measures of the reach of those innovations. Next slide. So the 
the, this graph basically shows one of the main takeaways. So these are the 18 innovations that the researchers believe to have scaled. Uh, so on the y-axis, you have the number of rural households adopting each of those innovations. And the striking picture is that this is a very skewed distribution. Many innovations are not being uh, used by many farmers, but some innovations are reaching multiple millions of farmers. And interestingly enough, the top three is across um, the, the three different domains. So there's natural resource management, one crop and one livestock innovation. Next slide. And so the more general lesson there is that while relatively few innovations, if you look at them one at a time, reach a large number of households, when you look at uh, the portfolio, we see actually widespread adoption of recent agricultural innovations. Um, and so that kind of arguably underlies uh, the, same, the, the kind of one CGR uh, reasoning. We also see that many of these innovations are not disproportionately more likely to be adopted by what we often think of it. So it's not necessarily true, at least not in Ethiopia, that it is the male, larger, richer, more educated and more connected farmers that, that use all the innovations. Indeed, you know, Chris talked about heterogeneity at a more micro, macro level. When we look at the micro level, we also see a very large heterogeneity. Different innovations are being used by different types of farmers. It also means that some innovations are not reaching the farmers uh, that we were aiming to reach for. And so that then speaks for reevaluating theories of change, the kind of understanding the who, the where, and the when of diffusion can understand how scaling efforts were working, but also why the ones that did work worked. And then, you know, going back to one of the other uh, messages from the bundles, uh, the Ethiopia report actually shows that the, the top three that I mentioned that I showed to you. In each of those cases, there is a very plausible story of synergies between the biophysical and the policy research that informed subsequent policies uh, to get to scale. And so that then uh, uh, opens up the discussion on thinking through the, model, the bottlenecks for the remaining innovations or for the bundles uh, and seeing which ones are too constraining and which complementary policies need to be in place. Thank you. Thank you very much, Karen. That is a, a, a very interesting report on Ethiopia, which clearly fits extremely well with, uh, with this discussion. Um, last but not least, uh, we, we now turn to Channing Arndt, uh, who is the division director um, at IFPRI for Environment and Production Technology. Channing, as Yo mentioned, has been very intimately involved with thinking about the, um, how to implement the research and innovation um, agenda and is now working on the uh, design teams for new, new research initiatives. Today, he will speak in particular on the importance of foresight, uh, which, you, uh, which Chris mentioned as a really vital ingredient when we think through uh, planning for these bu innovation bundles. So over to you, um, Channing. Thank you, uh, Charlotte. Thank you, uh, Chris, and everybody for the ability to talk on this on this panel. So, as Charlotte mentioned, I'm going to talk about foresight in general and foresight in one CJR. Um, please, uh, next slide. So, Claudia mentioned uh, the mission statement, and everybody, socio-technical bundles uh, transformation is a big part of this. Enoch also mentioned this, and it's a very big word. Uh, so we're going to be focusing on that here in transformation. And we're trying to get these transformations to work in five impact areas as part of this CGIR. So the role of foresight here, and this has been emphasized, is to inform deliberate decision-making. How do we go about initiating and maintaining a positive transformation process? And what are the implications, including potential unintended consequences? And how do we deal with trade-offs, which will inevitably arise as we're looking forward and making investments to try to uh, initiate and maintain these positive transformation processes? 
So I'm going to go ahead to the next slide and borrow, oops, one back, and borrow a slide from, from Chris, um, which looks at reduce the land and water footprint. One of the points here is part of these, many of these transformations, we want to go from a situation that currently exists to one that, that doesn't exist at all. Uh, the, the picture that he has on the left is the transformation from a system of fossil fuel electricity generation to a system of variable renewable energy. There's been a lot of foresight work involved there, and it's been very influential. I've had the pleasure to be involved in that. And now we're moving that into these kind of major transformations in agriculture, which, you know, the picture on the right is just one of those, growing vegetables indoors, uh, de-agrarianization. And we might want to look at, you know, what does that mean uh, for, you know, labor, for uh, uh, water use? Is it transformative? How far can it, can it actually go? So this is partly a, a, a process of envisioning a future that doesn't exist yet uh, and in the context of a, of a changing climate. So we're already doing some of this. I'll go to the next slide. And looking at, for example, modeling of our research and development impacts and, and priorities. And uh, the work that uh, Karen was talking about is really important on the first area, which uh, is looking at what is the return to R&D, this big portfolio and package. And there's been a lot of work that SPIA has done and others have done to look at what are the implications of, of R&D spending. And when we look forward, we find that if R&D gives the returns that it has given historically, it is a powerful lever for achieving a lot of objectives. Here, the focus, as Chris was putting, is, is on Sub-Saharan Africa. And we look at the population at risk of hunger in Sub-Saharan Africa. And, and more R&D really has, a, it's a powerful lever for, for reducing uh, uh, the population at risk of hunger. It will, of course, do a lot more. If we go to the second area, we find that in, for example, the 12 global food security strategy countries for USAID, poorer countries, you know, agriculture and the food system is just very important, about 42% of GDP, about two thirds of employment. So we expect a great deal of, if we get innovation inside the food system, a great deal of spillovers to human welfare and others. In, in the third area, we have this, we're looking at, as was being emphasized, a possible portfolio. And this is results from the RIAPA model that Enoch was, was mentioning. And in, in this, we have uh, different value chains and, and the returns to investment. And they differ in terms of, are they giving uh, changes in poverty reduction? Are they giving uh, growth in employment, growth in GDP, or growth in dietary diversity? And we can go and look at these and try to come up with a portfolio that provides sort of a balanced uh, set of, of growth. If you look at, this is the case of Bangladesh, and then this gets to Chris's point that we need to be quite specific about, about the areas. We can't just have one set of technologies. In Bangladesh, cattle and dairy gives you uh, a, a big uh, push, in, especially in terms of GDP employment and dietary diversity. And, and this is, is attractive, but there are also, as Chris was mentioning, you know, potential environmental implications from that. So this is where we're headed. Uh, the next slide, please. So we can do a bit of foresight on ourselves. And I, I think we have really uh, bright perspectives in terms of being able to look forward and, and try to envision in a rigorous way uh, using multiple techniques, you know, what, what's happening or what might happen and, and what path could be followed. And multiple barriers are receding. Analytical, computational, and data. I think that 1CG really is going to enable us to do a, a better job of pulling together the disparate parts uh, that, that exist across the CG and into a, a system that's going to link the, the biophysical and human systems, which is one of the points below. 
So we're going to be better able to, to envision the future and inform deliberate, uh, deliberate decision-making today. I think uh, uh, some examples include incorporation of risk, which was emphasized in the report, linking biophysical and human systems. That's the big dichotomy that Chris was talking about. You know, we're doing well in terms of human welfare, have been, uh, but, but at a cost. And so we need to link these together. And then as Karen was mentioning, we need to develop and track advanced metrics. So we're taking a broad view of foresight here. A few final comments, next slide is we certainly want foresight to inform one CGIR priorities in investment. But as has been pointed out, we need to mobilize big dollars in order to get the transformations that, that are desired. So government, regional, international organization, private sector, non-governmental organizations should be uh, uh, major users. And as, as Enoch was emphasizing, this has to be country-led. So we have to have some ownership, have to have ideas and a shared process so we can envision a future uh, together. Finally, Foresight is facilitating structural things, structured thinking. It's not a substitute for thinking. We need to bring multiple approaches to bear and recognize the various limitations of each approach. So thank you very much. And I look forward to the question and answer. Thank you so much, uh, Channing. And uh, that concludes our um, sort of discussants comments on the report uh, uh, by the stream team. So, so let's move into the Q&A session. And again, I encourage all of you in the audience to continue submitting uh, questions. Uh, let me turn to Chris for the first question. Um, you spoke about the tremendous successes of the agricultural system uh, that grew out of the, the Green Revolution. And, and maybe it's worth just going back there for a little bit. Um, what were the bundles uh, that were put into place back then to make that such a success? Because really, if you think about all the different players back then, from the foundations to the researchers to the governments, uh, everybody, there seemed to be a consensus on what was required to transform food systems back then. Of course, they maybe their foresight wasn't good enough because they didn't yet uh, understand fully the, the unintended consequences. But take us back a, a few decades and, and, and talk about what you think worked really well um, during that time? Yeah, so this is a really important thought experiment to go through. What is it that enabled real green revolution success? And some pieces are really easy to figure out, right? That there were some very important scientific breakthroughs, just the concept of shuttle breeding that Norman Borlaug developed kind of changed the way breeders operated and accelerated the pace at which they could develop improved germplasm for different agroecologies and for different crops. Um, and then there was the work on the germplasm itself. You know, the semi-dwarf varieties were very important advances, but it wasn't enough to just come up with better germplasm. You also had in a variety of places, especially in, in East and Southeast Asia, governments that were very committed to promoting agricultural extension that invested heavily in rural roads, things that are not dissimilar from the Ethiopian experience in the last 20 years that Karen was just describing. Now, there's, it's probably not an accident that governments that have prioritized the provision of, of public goods and public services in rural areas have enjoyed greater fruits from technological innovations that come in germplasm and better agricultural machinery and better irrigation delivery mechanisms, et cetera. These, these are synergistic. What, to me, one of the most telling comparisons one can make is think about 
the difference between the IR8 or later IR64 rice varieties and the golden rice innovation of the more recent 20 years. From many plant breeders' perspectives, golden rice was a more remarkable accomplishment of basic science than the IR8 innovation, especially the IR64 innovation, which was basically just building on what Erie and its partners had already learned. And yet 20 years on, we don't have open cultivation and commercialization of golden rice after developing this transgenic biofortified variety intended to solve a very real problem, vitamin A deficiency in rice consuming populations. So why the failure of golden rice and the success of IR8 and 64? That could be an entire book, but it, it, a lot of it comes down to complications of intellectual property, the complications of cultural and political objection to a transgenic crop where there wasn't similar objection to the earlier non-transgenic varieties, uh, lack of support since this was largely being promoted through the private sector and, and a few philanthropic organizations without the kind of early partnership of major government institutions. One could go on and I'm omitting a variety of different considerations, but the point being, we sort of looked for a magic bullet in golden rice and it hasn't delivered. The earlier stage green revolution was quite expressly coupling policy innovation with technological innovation and a deep commitment of a variety of partners who each stepped up and did their part. And we saw a miraculous change, not without adverse effects, but that is going back to the old green revolution combinatorial approach is clearly this right strategy rather than the magic bullet we can fix it in a lab approach. Thank you, Chris. I'm reminded that um, Norman Verlog, who of course was a very distinguished scientist, once said that he spent most of this time actually talking to politicians uh, about the importance of, uh, of policy. Um, let me turn to uh, Enoch with a question um, from Jose Tambara in Mozambique. Um, he writes, Africa is urbanizing faster, yes, uh, but the problem is, uh, is on policy, both on agri-innovation to cater for the population shifts is the CGIR looking at cooperating with political players to create enabling environments for global policy sustainability? I think a very important question. And unfortunately, we don't have policymakers on this panel. Um, but, but maybe, Enoch, you, you would like to speak to, to that question. Um, yes, uh, thank you very much for the question, you know, for Mozambique. Uh, if you look at uh, the Africa Union, they have an amazing blueprint on inclusive agricultural transformation uh, called CADEP. In that CADEP framework, it speaks very, very clearly in terms of what Africa must do, including aligning their policies, making uh, agriculture central to the development agenda of the continent. Because in any case, you look at uh, 55 countries in Africa, the bulk of those are actual agrarian. So agriculture is not just for food security, which is another problem. It is the solution to most of the challenges the continent is facing today. Agriculture can address nutritional issues. It can address employment issues. It can power industrialization. So it is when you begin to look at agriculture as an investment area, 
rather than a, a drain on the fiscus, when then you begin to have the government driving the agenda. And, and there's a lot in there. That's why, again, part of the solution is to try and provide with the tools. You know that every African country has its own blueprint, national blueprint. We call it the National Agriculture Investment Plan. But often, a lot of these plans is just like a laundry list of things. And of course, it is not adequately funded. So part of the work we are doing through the REAPA modeling is to really provide some insights in terms of how the government can prioritize the policies because the resources are always limiting. So under conditions of uh, resource constraints, you need to be able to prioritize. Where do I put my dollars and so on? And also, you know, within the CADEP, you know, there's agreement there within the whole continent to, to increase the budgets towards agriculture to about 10%. And as you know, just a few countries, I don't know, maybe four countries. So, so I mean, there, there are a lot of these choices and I think we are starting to make progress as Ethiopia is making progress, Rwanda is making progress, Ghana is making progress. We think we are going to have a critical mass of countries which can become exemplars. That's why, again, we do a lot of work there with Agra on the continent, which, again, we believe there's going to be a connection between what the CG does at the global level, regional level, but also Agra helping, especially on the policy formulation. Two things. There's, there, every government should be capable of really putting agriculture at the center. So we call that state capability. And that requires tools. So, so working with various partners, I mentioned RIAPA already, but they're also working with MAFAP and FAO and so on to provide these tools. The second one, it is about state capacity. You know, if you're capable, you know what you want to do, the next thing you need to institutionalize the implementation. And there's a lot of, uh, again, tools and examples there. You know, the ATA, which was created in Ethiopia, which is also bringing all the intersectorial coordination, agriculture, the center, but it's not the only ministry. Ministry of Finance has to understand that agriculture is important, industry and commerce, trade. So it is now when you begin to institutionalize that implement the implementation capacity. Again, there are tools there. We are working with various partners. So, so again, yes, <laughs> policy is the main issue. That's why it has to be country-led. If the government is not leading it, they become the elephant in the room, you know, impeding progress. But I'm confident things are happening and we're going to be seeing a couple of countries really, you know, making progress. Thank you very much, Enoch. Um, I have a question uh, uh, from an anonymous uh, questioner, and, and I think let's uh, direct this one towards Claudia and Channing. The private sector today is a major research force globally. Uh, is there evidence that their innovations are better at addressing multiple social objectives than in the past? A fascinating question, and maybe we can add to that. How, how does the CGIR plan to collaborate uh, with the private sector in this new uh, research and innovation agenda? And again, it's a pity we don't have the private sector with us on this panel, um, um, but certainly Chris had them on, on his panel. But, but let's have a Claudia and Channing maybe speak to the important role of the private sector. 
Shall I start then, Charlotte? Thank you. Um, this, is a, this is a fascinating question. Um, I, I, the role of the private sector, I think, really is evolving and is, uh, it's an extraordinary opportunity for collaboration uh, with the CGIR to, to understand whether the private sector is more effective uh, than it used to be in, in these impact areas. I think we are seeing a real shift in the private sector, not complete, of course, but a real shift toward um, values-based uh, engagements in many spaces. We see this rise of impact investing. We see this you know, rise of uh, ESG prioritization. We see uh, consumer bases in many countries being quite active in holding, uh, challenging the private sector um, to, to, uh, to aspire to some of the same goals that we've talked about here today. Uh, for the CG and, and for agriculture more broadly. So it's really interesting, I think, to see the way in which the landscape is changing in terms of our own aspirations for what we ask of the agriculture, agriculture sector and fruit, food systems more broadly, and what is being asked of the private sector and their accountability. So if, if, if we are in a situation where increasingly um, our, our sort of interests are aligned, and if we are for, for our purposes, more interested in working with the private sector precisely because of the discussion we've had here today, this idea that you need the, the operating environment, you need the policy environment, you need the engagement of partners to really leverage, to really scale. Um, we do need to uh, reach out and work more, more mindfully and more actively with the private sector moving forward in the CG. So this idea, for example, that Chris brought up and that is embedded in the research and innovation strategy as well of innovative financing. You know, is there a way to work more with the private sector, with social entrepreneurs, with impact investors, with uh, in, in the climate space, in the poverty space, in the gender space? All of these issues um, are, are really offering us tremendous opportunity. So in terms of the way that we intend to implement it, it's captured already in the research and innovation strategy, this, this need for partnerships. You remember that sort of gray bedrock of the research strategy in addition. Um, the first step really is as we begin to design these uh, initiatives. And these initiatives will carry with them a theory of change. We'll have theories of change at the initiative level, the action area level and for the CG as a whole. And as we iterate those theories of change and try to understand what the CG contributes and what we need partnerships to achieve, I expect and I hope that we will be investigating private sector partnerships in those, in those spaces as well. So maybe I'll turn to Channing who is more deeply embedded in the development of these initiatives at this point. Um, but, but again, this is, this is a space where we're trying to bring much uh, an updated view of uh, both our aspirations and the functioning of the private sector, the tremendous entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurialism that we're seeing in Africa uh, and elsewhere, the digital tools that we can have to in, uh, or create or platforms that we can create that private sector can then uh, use and leverage and, and scale. These are all really exciting opportunities for us. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Sean. And I'll, I'll pick up. I, I don't think actually I um, uh, that was answered extremely well. I think that the logic of public sector, you know, agricultural research, be it CGIR or NARS, is, is still very much there. I mean, it's very hard to 
you know, sort of extract returns from, from lots and lots and lots of small holders. And that, that's still a situation that exists. So, so there's the public logic. But, you know, as Chris was emphasizing at the beginning, and really Enoch was hinting at, there's just been enormous progress across developing countries in terms of reduction in hunger, reduction in poverty, and also in terms of their capabilities and their ability to, to you know, do, do analysis, do, do work. And, and this has created an environment where the private sector is much more active. And, and there are real possibilities to form uh, par partnerships that, that are much, much broader uh, than they were before. And this is something that we're definitely trying to account for and, and take account of in, in the initiative design um, process. It's, it's specific to each uh, uh, situation, but, but that, that's something that, that is really an exciting opportunity looking forward. Thanks. Excellent. Uh, I'm going to ask actually Chris to, to come in on, on, on this question as well. And let me, let me throw in another one about the private sector uh, before you do that, Chris. Um, yeah, this comes from Camilla Spiritolik. Um, how do we tackle the speed challenge? The pace of innovation in the world is much faster than regulation usually can keep up with. Um, so, so let's uh, maybe you could weave that into your uh, into your answer about uh, the need to really get the private sector uh, involved in these uh, in these bundles. Yeah, thank you. In fact, Camilla anticipated one piece of my response. So there, there are five key, very brief points I wanted to make about the private sector. The first is you have no choice. The private sector dwarfs the CGIR. The CGIR is smaller than, by my estimates, at least 30 individual companies' R&D budgets. So to think that you are going to move the agri-food system without the cooperation of the private sector is just an extraordinary leap of faith. Um, it is gonna be far easier to achieve impact if you can leverage the Goliath that is really having a huge influence for better or worse in systems. Second point is for better or worse, there are bad actors out there and they're good actors. It's just like in governments. It's just like in NGOs or philanthropies or universities. Some are really beneficent and are really trying hard to fix the problems they've created and to improve the world. Others are much more short-sighted and self-interested. You know, we need to not be naive, but we need to embrace and find partners we can work with and including enforce standards of conduct very clearly. Third key point is that I really can't emphasize enough the, the central message Karen was putting out. Businesses manage to what they measure. They're much more careful about this than the public sector or the nonprofit sector is. As we can advance and improve measurement, we can increasingly engage the private sector. Investors are not willing to take leaps of faith on unmeasurable performance attributes. Once we can measure how much soil carbon there really is reliably, you will find people willing to put money behind that. Once we have a better way of measuring the returns to improvements in micronutrient status in young children, people will be willing to develop impact investing instruments for that. Management to measurement is a central principle in business. I teach in a business school. I've been a dean of a business school. Measurement is really central in the private sector. This is an area the CGIR can contribute enormously and leverage private sector interest. Uh, fourth point is measurement is changing really fast as our business practices, as, as your questioner suggested. Frankly, in the last 15 years, I think anybody who believes the public sector 
can keep pace with the private sector hasn't been paying very much attention. So we are increasingly finding the private sector is getting out ahead of the public sector. Yo has written quite a bit on private standards in agri-food systems, really upping the bar that public, when public se sector standards bind, you've largely got an underperforming private sector. As the private sector steps up, the standards rise in many dimensions for good and for bad, but uh, the pace of change is fast. And finally, the pace of change is only gonna accelerate. I teach in a business school. Today's business school students are radically different than the business school students of 20 years ago. They want to do more than make money. They want to make meaning. They really aspire to transform the world and in doing so to take care of themselves and their families. But they are looking for bundled outputs. They're looking for multiple objectives to be realized at once. And they're preparing themselves for that. So we have an opportunity to induce a generation of aspiring business leaders to embrace a sector that historically was relegated more to the nonprofit and public sector. And I think it's an opportunity that could realize tremendous gains for NARS and the CGIR if we find a good way to embrace and engage effectively the private sector. Thank you, Chris. Uh, great, great points. Um, let me turn to Karen. We have another anonymous questioner. Um, the, the question is um, whether in, in, the, in the graph that you showed with the, with the innovations that, were, that reached more numbers of households in Ethiopia, um, presumably those innovations had such success because they were taken up in a more bundle-like uh, uh, approach. Could you maybe elaborate or maybe even give us a couple of, of, of examples from those innovations that really had a very significant uh, numerical impact? Thank you. Um, so I, I quickly hinted at, at some of that. So there is no uh, causal evidence on exactly why these are the most successful ones, uh, but we can certain, but we certainly have hypotheses. And so the um, in the three cases, uh, one can very easily document that the scale up of those innovations went together with important policy innovations that were informed by policy research, including by policy research. Uh, of the CGR, and so um, the and so that kind of you know that speaks to the 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 the, the socio technical bundles. I think in in, in line with with what what Chris talked about, it was of course the the an important part of the story. This is uh, Chris hinted at this is kind of you know it's Ethiopia. It's um, Inok hinted at this too. It's it's a country that where the government has invested a lot uh, and where there's a lot of, of there's been a lot of um, uh, things happening at the same time over the, over the last 20 years. Um, so the, to the extent that you, for instance, there is, there's been a lot of in, in investment in extension, but those kind of were promoting bundles of innovations as such, I wouldn't go as far as saying that. I think it's at a higher level in this case. Uh, and, and I think that's kind of the next step where to take that kind of, you know, can, can bundles be promoted at the same time or not? Uh, th thank you. Thank you very much, Karen. Uh, here's a question um, for perhaps several of you on the panel. I, I suggest we, we start with Chris. Um, so this question comes from Kebebe Ergano, um, uh, writing, I believe political economy will pose the single most important challenge to CGIR and development partners in implementing initiatives. 
What strategies do you envision, envision to embed in the initiatives to circumvent political economy challenges? Great question. Uh, Chris, do you want to kick us off? <laughs> sure. I, I don't have any, uh, any, any simple solution to this formidable challenge. I completely agree. I think uh, your questioners uh, put his or her finger on a key thing. I, one of the slides I fast forwarded through and didn't discuss was the, the central point of the report is the need to deconcentrate power. Political economy is about power. Um, and we see in countries that really do have dialogues, that really do have multi-stakeholder co-creation processes, we see a much greater rate of technological innovation. We see more participatory growth. We see improvements along a number of indicators on average, not in every case. Um, places where you have very powerful states, sometimes you get good results and sometimes you get terrible results. It's a kind of high risk, not always high return uh, approach to the governance of the agri-food system. And corporate power is equally problematic. I mean, catch and kill acquisitions by incumbent firms who are trying to kill off innovations so as to safeguard very profitable current lines of products or processes they have and IP restrictions that make it very hard for small players to innovate successfully. These are, these are concentrated power problems and ultimately they're about political economy. It takes visionary and courageous leadership to change that. I don't think there's any cookbook out there that will, will guide us. Claudia, Karen, would you maybe like to come in on this question? I believe on this particular question, it is you who has the comparative advantage. Yeah, I'm not sure, do we still have you with us? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. So, uh, Sorry, I didn't see you. <laughs> Here's our uh, uh, guru on political economy. Uh, well, uh, I wrote a book for Chris once uh, on Chris' demand on political economy. So it's, uh, <clears throat> yes, I think, obviously, I mean, this is crucial. The, um, I mean, if for nothing else, I mean, Chris gave the perfect example, I think, on the, on the golden rice and the comparison with the green revolution. I mean, that's, pure political economy story. It's really the regulatory issues there, which made the difference, I think, in a broader sense, of course. Okay. And so it's also something which we are, <clears throat> um, I've been thinking about it and actually wrote, I took several notes on it to see how that would fit in the future one CGIR research agenda and how we could make that central. But I think identifying trade-offs is crucial going forward. I mean, on the a lot of the discussion right now on food systems uh, transformation, okay, where uh, we have the United Nations Food Systems Summit coming up, it's all. <clears throat> I mean, many people are identifying key uh, areas where we need to do better, etc. But the question is, why haven't these things been done before already in the past? I mean, some of these are really straightforward things, right? And so they have not been done essentially because of the trade-offs there that uh, you are negatively affected some people and those people either have a hard time restructuring their what they are doing. Um, so kind of on the economic side or are actively opposing these changes on, on the political side. And so dealing with this and coming up with compensation schemes or models of moving forward is really essential, I think, of making these changes. Um, I can go on for a while if you want, but I'll stop here. I'm happy to hear what the panel has to say. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, uh, 
thanks for that, Yo. Let's let's move on to um, to maybe a new question, and and certainly the political economy considerations can be woven into all of these questions in a way. Uh, this is a very large question that's come in. Um, is climate change something that we can solve for? <laughs> Claudia. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is sort of right. This is one of the most fundamental questions that we're talking about these days. And I think, I think the issue for the CG is to make very clear that while we may not be able to solve for climate change, climate change cannot be addressed without a transformation of a food system. And I think one of our, one of our primary goals in the coming years must be to position food system transformation at the heart of responses to climate change in the adaptation side and at the heart of responses to climate change on the mitigation side as well. We've all seen in the last couple of months, this article in, in Science Magazine, the, the journal Science saying that even if all fossil fuel use were stopped immediately, we still couldn't reach the Paris targets without transformation of the food system because the food system is such a, a contributor to the climate challenge. Um, we, we, the, this uh, confirms, I, I think, the wonderful mnemonic that Johan Rockström uses, which is that there are three Fs to solve the climate crisis. There is fuel, there's food, and then there are footnotes. We need to change the energy mix, we need to change the food systems, and then everything else can help, footnotes. We can't solve climate without food. Food can't single-handedly solve the climate crisis, but it is so deeply central and, and what's particularly important for our mandate is not only that food systems need to be such a central part of the solution, but those that are most harmed are our stakeholders, are the small scale farmers. And if we don't really push forward, really lean in to adaptation for small scale farmers, so many of the poor will be disproportionately harmed. So much food security, so much unnecessary food insecurity uh, will arise uh, that, that it's essentially inseparable, right? The food system challenge in terms of the solutions, but also the, the challenges that, uh, that climate poses for food security, for equity, for sustainability, um, these are all completely inseparable. Thanks. Thanks, Claudia. And certainly food system transformation is, is a huge uh, player, both, I would say, for climate change mitigation and, and adaptation. So, so uh, very, very important uh, uh, focus on food systems. And of course, we have the UN Food System Summit, and that will be then uh, followed by the, the, the COP uh, on, on, on climate change. So those two international events will, will certainly both uh, put a spotlight on food systems. I have a very interesting question for Karen from, from Felix Mambal. Um, Karen, could you shed more light on, on what you found to be the major barriers to innovation, diffusion, and adoption by smallholder farmers uh, in developing countries using perhaps the Ethiopia study as, a, as an example? Uh, thank you, Charlotte, and thank you for that question. Uh, this is also a question that uh, on, on which there is multiple books uh, and studies uh, written, uh, so I can't do justice to this. Um, in the Ethiopia study, 
because we are documenting reach, we, we, we in a certain way, we purposely, um, it's purposely designed to highlight potential barriers for other people to go and do further research on. Uh, but I do want to link this back to the previous question, because I think the one of the barriers to adoption increasingly is uh, that, you know, farmers are making decisions about adoption in a context that is uh, uh, of climate change and of the uncertainties that that brings and kind of the, you know, as much as one can design uh, innovations. And I think that's been the lesson of a lot of the, of the kind of um, farm level natural resource management research that has happened in, 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 in the past. A lot of that is requires relatively uh, complex innovations and combined innovations that require for the farmers to make many adjustments at the same time uh, and learning. And that's where, you know, that the, 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 the scientific solution may be perfect, but it may, uh, you know, take a lot of different steps for the farmers to adopt this. And in, in, in a world of uncertainty and increasing uncertainty, uh, in, including changing weather patterns and increased possibility of shock, that shocks that becomes, uh, you know, that becomes a bigger ask uh, for those farmers. And so hence they need to put, again, complementary policies in place uh, to make that learning possible to uh, probably subsidize on the short term to allow them a period of learning to then uh, take that forward, to take those risks away, uh, at least on the short term, uh, to make that possible. Thank you, Karen. Let's let's have um, one last uh, uh, quick uh, question for Chris. Well, it's, I'm sure you could expand on it further, but but let's make it a, a, a quick one. Um, this comes from Julia Compton, who's with the COSI Commission for Sustainable Agriculture. Could you expand on the co-creation of innovation bundles and propose key performance measures for different actors? How, how can we best keep track of whether we're these bundles are being shepherded through in the in the right way. Great and hard question, Julia. Thanks. Um, so, by key performance measures, what we mean in particular is is in a given system, try to convene stakeholders who have a shared interest in in uh, in improvements in a system, and get them to each define what are the key metrics, what are the key outcomes they want to see. Uh, so this has a lot to do with trade-offs that has been brought up before. It has much to do with the fact that we're in, in multi-objective systems. Let me give you a, a, a very quick example. So I've, I've been involved for, for quite a few years in work in the drylands of East Africa, most of that work in collaboration with ILRI, as it happens, uh, where over a period of years in trying to grapple with how can these pastoralist populations better cope with what seemed to be more frequent and severe drought incidents. And in discussions with communities and with a variety of stakeholders, the government, some NGOs, private sector partners in the area, one thing that became evident over time was that one possibility was creating a financial product, index-based livestock insurance, IBLI. And as we developed the IBLI product and piloted and evaluated it in collaboration with ILRI and a, and a number of partners, you know, part of this was figuring out what are the metrics that different stakeholders care about. The insurance companies and reinsurers care about profits. They want to know, are they making money on the product? Is this crowding in other financial services that they provide that make the money, et cetera? Communities want to know, are herds being stabilized? Are households not skipping meals or not engaged in distress sale of livestock in response to droughts? 
range managers want to know, well, what's happening to the grasses? Are, are we seeing overstocking as a result? Are we seeing some destocking as a result? Because people have been engaged in precautionary overstocking as a, as a way of managing catastrophic loss due to droughts. So participatory development of an idea founded in research resulted in a product that's now scaled in, in Kenya into the Kenya Livestock Insurance Program that has a bunch of different metrics associated with it that comes from that co-creation process. It comes from engaging communities, business partners, NGOs, resource managers, each looking at slightly different outcomes they care about and thinking hard about which of these can we measure well and track and what do we see happening in response? So coming back again to sort of the SPIA mandate of how can we actually track these uh, these changes. So it's you know that's just meant as one small example that rooted in the CGIR, but it's precisely that process of, of starting from the conceptualization and design of a product and building in from the start some participatory process that looks at multiple measures, not just the one measure that some distant researcher thinks is most salient. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, we're we're going to be wrapping up, and I would like to ask. Uh, uh, to start with Yo, and then to move to the discussants, uh, maybe 30 seconds each, give us your key takeaways from, from this discussion and what you think is the most important now as we move forward uh, with the 1CGIR. Uh, Yo, over to you. Okay, um, first of all, I want to say, I, I think I was right. This was a dream team. I think this was a, a fantastic uh, event uh, session. And I think it had been really bright and, and great uh, communication and, and ideas being forwarded and discussed here. So I wrote down a whole bunch of things around uh, metrics, innovative finance, bundles, uh, trade-offs, political economy, et cetera, where I will spend some time thinking about more. But again, thanks so much for everybody for being here. Thanks. Thank you, Claudia. Thanks, again, it, uh, just a fantastic conversation here today. It really reminds us of just how important it is to continuously be refreshing our views on what needs to be done and to continuously upgrade our tools um, about how that we use to achieve uh, these evolving goals. So I'm personally really very inspired both by the evolving vision, the complexity of the vision, the nuance of the vision, the aspirations uh, for, for equity, sustainability, and, and real evidence-based uh, thought in, our, in, in what needs to be done, um, and excited by the tools uh, that, that folks are exploring and that we're really trying to, to, to implement uh, in order to reach those goals. So very inspiring morning for me here. Thank you. Thank you, Claudia. Enoch. So many, many takeaways here, but maybe my, my dominant one is really uh, the co-creation as explained by Chris, very, very important. And I think the second one is about measurement because what gets measured gets done. So you can really know where you're not doing good. You can quickly respond because you're measuring something. At times you keep on accelerating on the same thing and you think it's working, but you need to pause and measure and ask yourself lots of questions helps in the innovation process. So really um, great takeaways here. Thank you so much, uh, Enoch. Karen. Thank you. Let me first uh, kind of have a, a, an add-on thought on the measurement topic, which is that I've, 
the, uh, in addition to knowing what to measure, I think knowing how to measure uh, is equally important. And, and there's certainly a lot of learning there because there's also a lot of that. Uh, uh, that's not particularly helpful. In terms of lessons, I think one of the lessons for me, uh, I very much enjoyed this is, is the kind of the thinking through the idea of the bundles really at different levels, it's kind of these different types of bundles that one, one uh, that are part of this discussion and, and they all speak to each other, uh, but they're also slightly different. So that's my main takeaway. Thank you, Karen. And last but certainly not least, uh, Channing. Thank you very much. I'll echo also the, the point on measurement. I think that's very important. I thought the points that uh, Chris and Enoch were making as being able to especially bring in private sector with, with good measurement is, is really uh, key. The other one that I think keeps coming up and you know, Chris's example of, of livestock insurance is this whole concept of risk and resilience and how central that's gonna be uh, for the research program and for our work looking forward, uh, certainly coming out of the COVID uh, impact uh, uh, pandemic, we have a sense of the importance of low frequency but high impact events. And, and these things are likely not, not exactly pandemics, but all sorts of events due to climate change, other things are, are, are perhaps uh, coming. And, and we need to be, bear this in mind as we're looking forward and investing. Thanks. Thank you very much to, to Chris Barrett and this very distinguished uh, um, set of discussants for a really fabulous um, conversation. I'd like to thank very much IPRI's events uh, management team. And let me also remind you that our next seminar is already on uh, March 23rd, uh, 9.30 time EST. And we'll be looking at uh, resilient livelihoods, food security and nutrition for all, confronting the gendered impacts of COVID-19. Thanks everybody for joining in and uh, we look forward to being in touch with you in future seminars. All the best.